When your brain needs a little pick-me-up. A little challenge. Give it something that'll make it feel as awesome as the first day of summer vacation. With Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the ultimate casual puzzle game, and it's always there for you with new levels, adorable characters that I love to collect, and a challenge that you won't want to put down. Trust me, one or two levels always turns into 10 or 15. It is super fun, and it's free to download. Download the five-star rated puzzle game, Best Fiends, free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R best fiends. Quick disclaimer this week, there are some adult themes. Nothing too bad, but please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a Cinderella-like story from Egypt. But instead of a glass slipper, the protagonist gets to live inside a very smelly monster costume. The creature this week is what happens when a caterpillar tries out a stand-up set. Death for everyone involved. This is Myths and Legends, episode 225, Kitchen Nightmare. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week, it's a fairy tale from Egypt. It is not Egyptian mythology, sorry. I'm still trying to work my way back into that. This week, though, it's a Cinderella-like story that was a lot of fun. Not a ton of backstory on this one. It's set in the Middle Ages among the various kingdoms in northern Africa, and we'll jump into a story of a king with a common problem. He has just lost his queen, and who finds a not-so-common solution. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, the king said. The matchmaker nodded. That was her profession and what she did. Didn't know why he kept saying that. She had some women in mind and, Oh, bud, oh, your highness, it'll be okay. The king sighed, wiping the tears away with his wrists and a full-on ugly cry. He just, he never thought he would be here again, needing a matchmaker. He had been happily married for 17 years. He had a daughter with the love of his life. And his queen had been taken from him. That had been a year ago. Yeah, I lived through it. We all did, the matchmaker replied. Also, they were kneeling beside the late queen's tomb. There were ways to move on. Not sure this was one of them, though. The king said that contrary to what the matchmaker thought, he was definitely ready to move on. Now, to discuss his criteria. Here it was. He held out a single anklet. The matchmaker took it. Technically, it's criterion if it's singular, but did the king care to explain? The king said that this anklet had belonged to his late wife. He didn't care if his new wife was rich, poor, humble, or well-born. If her foot fit this anklet, he wanted her for his wife. He had promised his wife as she lay dying that he would marry that girl and none other. She said that she didn't care she was literally dying, but the king said a promise was a promise. The matchmaker studied the anklet. Hmm, all right. Kind of like a reverse Cinderella thing, but instead of a beautiful night at a ball, the girl only had the crushing expectations of the king's late soulmate to live up to. Cool. She would get right on it. And she did. She searched the entire kingdom. She had a reputation as a famous matchmaker, 
and it wasn't a hard sell to get a woman to try the anklet on if she could become queen if it fit, but it didn't. The matchmaker tried almost every woman in the kingdom, but the anklet didn't fit a single one. She sat across from the king, so, you know, he should probably just try to meet someone based on other factors than his dead wife's jewelry fit. Like, you know, any would be more normal than that. The king held up a hand. He replied that the matchmaker said, almost every woman in the kingdom? The matchmaker nodded. Well, yeah, everyone but the king's own household. I mean, everyone except for his own daughter, but that would be, the king interrupted the woman. Have his daughter come to the throne room immediately. The matchmaker grimaced as she gave the order to her servants. Oh, so that's this type of story, huh? Oh, cool, is this mom's? The daughter said as she slipped the anklet on. It was a perfect fit. The king asked her to take it off and leave them alone, please. The daughter obliged, and soon the king and the matchmaker were alone. The wizened matchmaker spoke up. (laughs) Well, there's his answer. Either he should marry his own daughter or give up this whole ridiculous anklet thing. The king nodded. She was right. He was convinced. He should marry his own daughter. The matchmaker, thinking that surely no one would agree to that, nodded. Great, she would get started on... Wait, what? The king had someone in to draw up the paperwork, but decided to keep the actual marriage a fun surprise for his daughter slash soon-to-be wife. It was a bit of an open secret, though, and literally everyone but the princess knew. How they managed to keep it from her until the wedding day is anyone's guess. Still, the daughter of one of the king's ministers stood behind her, frowning, as the princess got ready for her wedding. It was to a mysterious king from a far-off land, but, you know, she was excited. Then the princess turned to her friend. What's up? The minister's daughter said she couldn't say. For free? Give her one of those golden bangles, and she could tell the princess the big news. The princess took off one of the bangles and tossed it to the woman. Okay, now tell her what was up. The girl smirked. The princess might be marrying a king, but it wasn't one from a faraway land. The princess was going to marry her own father. The princess laughed out loud, but then saw that her ladies-in-waiting and servants weren't laughing. Their gaze was shifting awkwardly to the ground. They said that, yeah, they should finish getting her ready. They knew how capricious a deranged king could get, and they all wanted to keep their heads. The story says that the princess turned whiter than the cloth on her head, and she trembled like one who is sick with a 40-day fever, which, that's a long time to have a fever. Leave, she told the women. They all stood around awkwardly. Now, she demanded. The women fled the room. When they were gone, the princess didn't waste any time. She slipped from a window and ran along the castle wall. When she was in the right spot, she jumped out into the night sky. She landed on a pile of animal skins at the home of a tanner. The man and his family emerged from their home, saw the woman, and bowed low before her. She looked at them and then looked at the animal skins. Slipping another golden bangle from her arm, she said that she needed something made for her from those animal skins. 
slipping another, she said she needed it done by tomorrow morning. At the latest, the horns blared from the palace of the king. The princess slipped the rest of the bangles from her arm and piled them in the hands of the tanner. The rest were for his silence. The tanner nodded and told her to hide in the house. They would have what she required by morning. We'll see what the princess's plan is, but that will be right after this. It was nearly dawn when the guards passed by the city gate. They stopped and, uh, what was that? There appeared to be some sort of animal asleep by the gate, but it looked unlike anything they had ever seen before. It was a mound of different types of fur and skin, rising and falling with each breath. It was alive, but yikes. Then, as they approached, two eyes opened from somewhere deep in the folds. The two guards shrieked and jumped back. What, what was that thing? The mound rose and shambled toward them, swaying eerily with each step. The guards backed up. Ask it. Do it, man, so we can get out of here, one guard said to the other. The other grimaced. Uh, hi, sir, thing, horrifying shambling mound. The first guard elbowed the speaker. He turned, what, like it doesn't know it's a shambling mound of animals it consumed? Absorbed? What are we dealing with here? He turned back. Had it seen the princess? The king's daughter? The eerie form called back. In verse, my name is Julida, for my coat of skins. My eyes are weak, my sight is dim. My ears are deaf, I cannot hear. I care for no one, far or near. The two guards swallowed hard. Cool, so it didn't see anyone because it had a difficult time with that, and it hated people. That was their cue. They thanked the monster and ran off as quickly as they could. When the day broke, no one stopped the monster i.e. the princess smirking and sweating in her monster costume, from putting the city of her father far behind her. I don't know what she thought was going to happen, but when you're venturing in the desert, you probably want to have at least water and, you know, close that breathe. By twilight, Julita, as we're going to call her now, was nearly unconscious. She had arrived at another city, but couldn't move another step. She crawled to the cool spot under a wall of a sultan's palace to sleep. When she awoke, she was still in disguise, but was looking up at the queen. It turned out that she had collapsed outside the wall to the sultan's harem, and one of the enslaved women inside saw her. Kind of freaked out a little bit like everyone else when they saw Julida, and told the queen that an ifrit, an evil genie, had collapsed outside their wall. The queen told the enslaved woman to bring her the ifrit. A dangerous thing to ask, yeah, but also kind of really difficult because the creature looked big. Still, the woman dragged Julida inside, and in the relative cool of the palace, Julida awoke in the presence of the sultan's wife. The woman gasped and stepped back when the eyes opened, and the queen demanded to know who or what was this thing. Julida replied with her poem, and the queen laughed in reply, demanding the enslaved girls to bring their new guests some food. I don't know how Julida ate with the costume on, 
but let's assume that it was scary. And by the end of the meal, the queen said that the monster was obviously having a tough time of it. Did it need a job or something? What could the monster do? Julita shrugged and grumbled out that she could do anything that was asked. She was up for trying. The queen smiled again. Excellent. Then she should work in the kitchens. Julita cocked her head. Really? Okay, sure. It was better than sleeping on the street. Julita pretended to fumble around the new kitchen for a little bit, until she pretended to learn where everything was. It was weird at first to have a monstrous shambling mound helping out with the dinner rush, but soon she became just another part of the kitchen. One evening, the harem stopped by to say that the king was throwing a ball, and all the normal servants could pop in and take a look if they wanted. The people jumped at the chance. All but Julita. When the women came over, and poked one of her stinky, furry patches, she replied immediately with, My ears are deaf, I cannot hear, I care for no one, far or near. Which, if you're looking for a way to get out of going to stuff, pretending not to hear the people inviting you, and then replying with, I don't know what you said, but I hate people, is a pretty solid tactic. But Julita didn't plan on not going. As soon as the kitchen was empty, she threw off the skins. Underneath, she had a coin purse, and she was keeping the dress she was going to be married in. She rushed to the river to take a quick bath, and then returned to the kitchen, where she slipped into the dress, went to the ball, and made her entrance. Oh. My. Gosh, Julita, you have no idea what you missed, the women said when they returned to the kitchen to see Julita just sitting in a corner, staring at a wall. They explained how this beautiful stranger had arrived at the ball. She was as tall as a cypress tree with a face like a rose, and she wore the silks and jewels of a king's bride. They all tried to sit next to her, and she was sweet and smart and regaled the whole party with her stories. When dawn came, everyone wanted the party to keep going, but she said that it was time for her to go. The harem was going to follow her, but then she reached inside her sash and pulled out a handful of gold coins, throwing them up into the air. The normal servants, who had been relegated to the outer rim of the party, saw the coins and made a mad dash. The stranger disappeared in the chaos. Julita said, once again pretty forcefully, that her ears are deaf, she cannot hear, her eyes are weak, her sight is dim, Seriously, why were they telling her this? It's just mean. She wouldn't have been able to see or hear much of it anyway. The harem ignored her, and after about 20 more minutes of talking about how awesome the stranger was, they all finally went to bed. They weren't the only ones excited about the stranger, though. That morning, the queen woke her son up with the news of the girl she wanted him to marry. At first, he was annoyed. He didn't go to these parties for a reason. And that reason was that mom got all weird and tried to set him up with the first beautiful girl that was remotely available. That's not how he wanted to meet his wife. And it really got weird when the queen straight up threatened to press the young woman into marriage without their consent. The queen ignored all of that and kept raving about the stranger, about her looks, her grace, her kindness, her intelligence. Finally, the prince sat up. All right. She had his attention. Throw another ball tonight and the prince would actually show up this time. He did, and so did Julida, who, even more than the previous night, was the focus of the party. When dawn arrived once again, 
Julita stepped out into the middle of the dance floor and tossed a handful of pearls in the air this time. This time, the harem couldn't help themselves and clamored. In the chaos, Julita left. Or tried to. The prince was ready for her tricky exit and stood blocking the door. What's your name? Who's your father? What land do you come from? He demanded. Julita tried to ignore him and slip around him, but he caught her arm, holding her there, barking demands for answers because he was into her and wanted to get to know her better. Sidebar, I'm sure I don't need to say this, but any of you guys looking for dating advice, if you have to forcefully restrain the person you're trying to get to know, you're doing it very wrong. Don't do that. Julita wasn't messing around. Before the prince knew what hit him, Julita hit him, and he was on the ground, with the wind knocked out of him. Julita looked back and shook her head. I guess, sensing that this handsome prince meant well, she bent down and plucked the ring off his finger. She told him that she lived in the land of paddles and ladles. With that, she disappeared. Paddles and ladles, the prince said frantically, spreading out the map. What could that mean? The best minds in the Sultanate were gathered around the table. The land of paddles and ladles. The vizier pointed to a kingdom that was a four-day ride across the desert, tracing out a river and a mountain range that kind of looked like a paddle and a ladle. Still, there was another, even further away, that reportedly had trees that were big on top and skinny on the bottom. That's... ladley? The prince wrung his hands, once again noticing his lost ring, the one that the stranger had stolen. Oh, the audacity. That just made him want her more. He still, he had to find this land of paddles and ladles. The king called for a servant from the kitchen. Would someone in the kitchen be able to get provisions together for his son and his journey? The kitchen? The vizier confirmed. Yes, the kitchen, the king replied, and then turned back to the table to figure out this mystery of the land of paddles and ladles. In the end, the prince decided to visit all the lands. He was so entranced by the stranger that he just had to see her again, even if it killed him. He would travel to the ends of the earth to find her. He was three days out when, stopping off for a cake break, he ordered the servants to get out the provisions. He saw a servant take one of the smaller cakes off the top, grimace, and then toss it aside. What was that? The prince asked, picking up the cake. Why was the servant throwing away perfectly good cake? Uh, they were questing. It was wasteful. The servant was about to ask, who packs a donkey full of cake for a trip through the desert? It was cake. It didn't travel well. But instead, explained why he didn't want to eat the cake. It was made by the creature, Julida, and it was as misshapen as she was. Uh, the prince held up a hand and said, hey, his kingdom was a place of sensitivity and inclusion. He would eat the cake that she made. He took one bite and almost threw the whole sensitivity and inclusion thing right out the window, when he very nearly chipped a tooth on what was in the cake. He spat it out, and it sparkled in his hand. It was the ring that the beautiful stranger had stolen from him that night of the ball. Oh, the prince said, turning bright red, Land of paddles and ladles. He got it now. Wow. That went right over his head. 
we'll see what the prince does with the knowledge of Julita's true identity. But that, again, will be right after this. Only Julita shall bring me my dinners, the prince cried when he returned. The queen asked if he meant that strange creature that worked in the kitchen, the one that might be an evil genie. You know she has a hard time seeing and hearing, right? And also she doesn't have hands? This is kind of cruel, even for a medieval monarch. But the prince would not be placated, only Julita. The servants in the kitchen held the tray and looked at Julita and her no arms or hands. She was just a shifting, shambling mound of various animal skins. Still, an order was an order. They gingerly balanced the tray of food on top of her head and yelled at her to take it up five flights of stairs to the prince. They watched the woman who allegedly had a difficult time seeing and hearing balancing a tray on her head to take it up to the tallest tower in the castle. Yeah, that she was fine. She would be fine. She wasn't. And two floors up, Julita definitely didn't intentionally shrug, sending the tray bouncing down the stairs. If the prince wanted his dinner on time, maybe he shouldn't be so casually cruel. Still, an order was an order. So, as soon as the dinner was remade, the servants in the kitchen commanded two enslaved girls to come over and hold the tray on top of the creature's head as they all walked up the cramped stairway. Why the two girls didn't just take it up themselves and put it on Julita's head at the top, I have no idea. But soon, all three were standing outside the prince's door. You two, the prince said to the enslaved girls. Leave us. The girls bowed and left. Julita, come inside, the prince commanded. As Julita shuffled, she said the poem that pretty much everyone in the Sultanate knew by now. My name is Julita for my coat of skins. My eyes are weak, my sight is dim. My ears are deaf, I cannot hear. I care for no one, far or near. Eyes glazed over, and mind focused on balancing the tray, at least until it was close enough to knock over onto the prince, Julita didn't notice the prince pull out a dagger and stab her. The tray fell, crashing to the ground, and Julita screamed. But the prince ran the dagger down the seams, and the leather coat came apart, dropping to the floor. Inside, Julita was unscathed. The prince's face lit up when he saw her. He knew it! Julita shrieked and ran to a curtain, hiding herself. The guards, and the girls who had helped Julita carry the tray up, came rushing in at the scream, and saw the tray broken on the ground, and the dead body of a kitchen worker, and the prince holding the knife. The guard narrowed his eyes. The prince murdered Julita. He looked up to his boss. You going down for this, prince? Then he and the girls laughed. Ah, just kidding. He was a fairy tale monarch in the Middle Ages. He could do whatever he wanted. The prince glanced to the curtain and then called to his mother. When she arrived, she looked to the supposed body on the floor. Oh, no, not again. I'm just kidding. The story doesn't say anything about this being a pattern, but given the prince's behavior, it's not far-fetched. The queen said that she would miss the strange curiosity of a creature that they had employed in the kitchens for fun. The prince said that if she wanted to mourn Julita, she should mourn the true Julita. He gestured to the curtains, and Julita stepped out. Now, this story gets a bit complicated, because it says that the prince and Julita were immediately wedded and lived together in bliss. 
In fact, the prince had a cadi, a judge, to immediately draw up a legally binding marriage contract. Of course, I'm looking at this through a 21st century lens, but it does seem like kind of a jump to go from her punching him at a party and getting stabbed to immediate marriage. Granted, she did give him information at the party to pretty easily track her down, that he took an invitation to come find her down in the kitchens and turned it into a six-day cake-laden quest out into the desert is really on him. From a purely pragmatic standpoint, this was the best chance she had at a somewhat normal life. Her father was a powerful man, but she didn't doubt that he was looking for her. If she wanted to ever leave the costume behind and be herself again, she needed the protection of a kingdom behind her. So she accepted the prince's proposal and the two were wedded. And she wasn't wrong. Her father was out there looking for her. On the night of her escape, he had rushed into the bridal chamber to find it empty, and he ordered the city searched. When she didn't turn up, he called his ministers and his servants and dressed for travel. And since that day, he had been journeying from country to country, looking for his daughter slash betrothed. Julida saw him first, though, and his grand traveling caravan as it arrived at the gates of the city. She smirked, telling her husband to invite them in. That night, at dinner, the prince entertained the king. He said that his wife would be along shortly. But in the meantime, here was a completely unrelated storyteller, who lived in town or whatever. She had a story for the illustrious travelers. The king nodded thoughtfully. He didn't know if anything could take his mind off of his quest, but sure, let's hear the story. The storyteller, who definitely wasn't Julida in yet another disguise, told a story of a young woman who loved her parents. She loved both her father and her mother. But then, when she just became a woman, she lost her mother. She and her father mourned together. And while it was so difficult, life moves on. The girl was healing, but she saw the pain in her father's face each day. Still, he tried to force himself to move on. He wasn't ready. He wanted someone like his wife, the woman he loved, the one that he lost, who he was supposed to be with forever. So he made a heinous choice, and his daughter, though she understood her father's grief, also understood that he wasn't the man she had known. His grief had twisted him, changed him, and he was looking for anything to stop the pain. So she ran. She ran and she became a monster in a strange land. But through some chance happenings, she found happiness. And she could learn to forgive her father. The king wept. Oh, that story was just like his. That was the story of what he had done to his daughter. It was horrible. He was horrible. Julita sighed. Dad, seriously. The king jumped with a start. Julita. He dropped to his knees begging her for her forgiveness. He had been so wrong to demand that of her. He just missed his queen so much. She helped him to his feet, and the pair embraced. They both did. They both did. So, Julida and her father were reconciled, and the king gave the prince and his daughter half of his kingdom. The king, as a way to take responsibility for his heinous intent, declared that it was all the matchmaker's fault. It had been her idea the whole time. He had her chained up and thrown off a cliff because he might be a male absolute monarch in the Middle Ages with complete control over his actions, but she had obviously made him do it. 
the end. how the story combined different elements from a few different stories, but still kept it interesting. We've seen the kind of, frankly, gross family marriage proposal before, with a brother wanting to marry his sister. Hard to say which one is more common, brother or sister or father or daughter, probably this one. They're both more common than they should be, though. Then we have the Cinderella aspect, with her going to the ball and meeting the prince, though it didn't bother with the obsession with threes, like many of the fairy tales have which, as a reader and a writer, I appreciate cutting out an unnecessary trip to the ball. And, of course, there's the transformation from a monster to a beautiful royal, though, though, instead of the pig prince or the frog prince, this time it was a princess throwing off the disguise. After being stabbed by her betrothed, such a beautiful love story. Next week, we're getting into that bizarre European story I talked about last week. It ended up taking me way longer than I thought, so I put this one on first. If you'd like to support the show, for less than the price of a Zen Garden litter box, a Zen Garden that you put on top of your desk with fake cats and fake cat surprises, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that don't give you the experience of something that, if you have cats, you already do way too much of. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is Bacororo, from South America. The Bacororo is what you get when a jaguar dad and a human mom have babies. And I don't mean anything nefarious. This was a loving marriage that, sadly, ended in tragedy. You see, jaguar married a human woman, and they were expecting. It was an exciting time. The only problem? The mother-in-law. Jaguar's mother was a caterpillar who had jokes that could put a smile on someone's face forever, because her jokes make you laugh so hard that you died. When Jaguar went out hunting one morning, Caterpillar launched into her tight five, and she was disappointed. It seemed that her daughter-in-law had a strong and discerning sense of humor. She was a tough one to crack. So Caterpillar really turned up the funny, but Jaguar's wife wasn't having any of it. She wouldn't even crack a smile. Finally, having worked through all of her new material, Caterpillar gave up. If that wouldn't do it, nothing would. Caterpillar narrowed her compound eyes. You're all right, daughter-in-law. Then, her daughter-in-law's head exploded. In her attempt to not laugh herself to death, the daughter-in-law kept it all inside. She refused to even smile. So, all the effort of keeping in her laughter caused her to burst. She slumped over, dead. Caterpillar glanced nervously from side to side. She didn't so much care about killing Jaguar's wife. She never liked the girl. She did care, however, about falcons. You see, Caterpillar being a caterpillar, it was always good to have a chaperone around. Whether her son, her friends, or her former daughter-in-law, Caterpillar needed a bigger animal to keep the predators at bay. She looked up to the trees and saw the shadow swoop. When Jaguar returned home, he saw half of his mom, the other half having been taken away by that falcon who had been hanging around recently. 
and he saw the body of his wife. He rushed to cut open the wife's womb, and he delivered the twins. Being born amongst carnage, Bakororo, one of the twins, took the lead in the animal world. As part of his divine nature, he had the authority to tell animals that they shouldn't eat humans. When all was said and done, he settled in the far west, in a place where souls go after death, hopefully reuniting with his mother. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Okay, Jason, think about your closest friends. Okay. Okay, the people that are by your side no matter what. Like your D&D group. (laughs) (laughs) That's who I was thinking of, yeah. (laughs) Do they make you laugh? Yes. Are they supportive? Yes. Can they challenge you when you need it? Yes, that demigorgon was very difficult to fight, yeah. No comment. (laughs) We can all use a good challenge now and then, and that includes your brain. Good thing Best Friends is always there for us, and you, helping your brain feel fresh and excited. Just like it remembered, it's Taco Tuesday. I love Taco Tuesday. It is actually Taco Tuesday today. It is. It is. <laughs> See, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, but sadly, all good tacos must come to an end. Best Fiends, on the other hand, has literally thousands of levels and they're still making more. Yes, all the time. Krissa, try. Try to run out of new levels. Oh, I'll try. Uh, I know. We, we both have really tried. But because they're making new ones, you probably won't. Yeah, we're in like the 500s now. Mm-hmm. And we're not even close to the end. Yep. If you like solving fun puzzles and something that's easy to get into, Best Fiends is made for you. It's free to download. It makes you think. And it's bright, fun, and always new. This is the match three game you want to check out. Download the five-star rated puzzle game, Best Fiends, free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends.